0: section thirty five of the life of samuel johnson volume one by james boswell this librivox recording is in the public domain johnson's happiest days last i it is a sad saying that most of those whom he wished to please had sunk into the grave and his case at forty five was singularly unhappy unless the circle of his friends was very narrow I have often thought that, as longevity is generally desired, and I believe generally expected, it will be wise to be continually adding to the number of our friends, that the loss of some may be supplied by others. Friendship, the wine of life (footnote Macbeth Act 2 Scene 3 and a footnote), should, like a well-stocked cellar, be thus continually renewed, and it is consolatory to think that although we can seldom add what will equal the generous first growths of our youth yet friendship becomes insensibly old in much less time than is commonly imagined and not many years are required to make it very mellow and pleasant warmth will no doubt make a considerable difference men of affectionate temper and bright fancy will coalesce a great deal sooner than those who are cold and dull the proposition which i have now endeavoured to illustrate was at a subsequent period of his life the opinion of johnson himself he said to sir joshua reynolds if a man does not make new acquaintance as he advances through life he will soon find himself left alone a man, sir, should keep his friendship in constant repair. The celebrated Mr. Wilkes, whose notions and habits of life were very opposite to his, but who was ever eminent for literature and vivacity, sallied forth with a little jeu d'esprit upon the following passage in his grammar of the English tongue, prefixed to the dictionary. H seldom, perhaps never, begins any but the first syllable. In an essay printed in the public advertiser, this lively writer enumerated many instances in opposition to this remark. For example, The author of this observation must be a man of quick apprehension and of a most comprehensive genius. The position is undoubtedly expressed with too much latitude. This light sully we may suppose made no great impression on our lexicographer, for we find that he did not alter the passage till many years afterwards. Footnote: In the third edition, published in 1773, he left out the words "perhaps never" and added the following paragraph: "It sometimes." begins middle or final syllables in words compounded, as blockhead, or derived from the Latin as comprehended, Boswell. In the abridgment, which was published some years earlier, after never is added, except in compounded words. End footnote. Garrick's complimentary epigram, Anno Domini seventeen fifty five. He had the pleasure of being treated in a very different manner by his old pupil, Mr. Garrick, in the following complimentary epigram. Footnote. It was published in the Gentleman's Magazine for April seventeen fifty five, volume twenty, page one ninety. Just below the advertisement of the dictionary, end of footnote. On Johnson's Dictionary. Talk of war with a Briton, he'll boldly advance that one English soldier will beat ten of France. Would we alter the boast from the sword to the pen, our odds are still greater, still greater our men. In the deep mines of science, though Frenchmen may toil, can their strength be compared to Locke, Newton, and Boyle, let them rally their heroes, send forth all their powers, their verse men and prose men, then match them with ours first, Shakespeare and Milton, like gods in the fight, have put their whole drama and epic to flight. Footnote in the original Milton and Shakespeare. End of footnote. In satires, epistles, and odes, would they cope? Their numbers retreat before Dryden and Pope, and Johnson, well armed like a hero of yore, has beat forty French, and will beat forty more. Footnote: The number of the French Academy employed in settling their language. Boswell and a footnote. Zachariah Williams, I, of Forty Six johnson this year gave at once a proof of his benevolence quickness of apprehension and admirable art of composition in the assistance which he gave to mr zachariah williams father of the blind lady whom he had humanely received under his roof mr williams had followed the profession of physic in wales but having a very strong propensity to the study of natural philosophy had made many ingenious advances towards the discovery of the longitude, and repaired to London in hopes of obtaining the great parliamentary reward." The maximum reward offered by a Bill passed in 1714 was twenty thousand pounds for a method that determined the longitude at sea to half a degree of a great circle, or thirty geographical miles. For less accuracy smaller rewards were offered in seventeen sixty five john harrison received seven thousand five hundred pounds for his chronometer he had previously been paid two thousand five hundred pounds in this act of parliament the legislature never contemplated the invention of a method but only of the means of making existing methods accurate an old seafaring man wrote to Swift that he had found out the longitude. The dean replied that he never knew but two projectors, one of whom ruined himself and his family, and the other hanged himself, and desired him to desist, lest one or other might happen to him. Swift's works, 1803. In She Stoops to Conquer, Act 1, Scene 2, when Tony ends his directions to the travellers by telling them, Coming to the farmer's barn, you are to turn to the right, and then to the left, and then to the right about again, till you find out the old mill. Marlowe exclaims, Sounds man, we could as soon find out the longitude. End of footnote joseph baretti anno domini seventeen fifty five he failed of success but johnson having made himself master of his principles and experiments wrote for him a pamphlet published in quarto with the following title an account of an attempt to ascertain the longitude at sea by an exact theory of the variation of the magnetical needle with a table of the variations at the most remarkable cities in europe from the year sixteen sixty to sixteen eighty dagger. to diffuse it more extensively it was accompanied with an italian translation on the opposite page which it is supposed was the work of signor baretti an italian of considerable literature who having come to england a few years before had been employed in the capacity both of a language master and an author and formed an intimacy with dr johnson footnote joseph beretti a native of piedmont came to england in seventeen fifty see preface to his account of italy he died in may seventeen eighty nine in his journey from london to genoa He says that his father was one of the two architects of the King of Sardinia. Shortly after his death, a writer in the Gentleman's Magazine, who was believed to be Vincent, Dean of Westminster, thus wrote of him. Though his severity had created him enemies, his talents, conversation, and integrity had conciliated the regard of many valuable friends and acquaintance. His manners were apparently rough, but not unsocial. His integrity was, in every period of his distresses, constant and unimpeached. His wants he never made known but in the last extremity. He and Johnson had been friends in distress. One evening, when they had agreed to go to the tavern, a foreigner in the streets, by a specious tale of distress, emptied the doctor's purse of the last half guinea it contained when the reckoning came what was his surprise upon his recollecting that his purse was totally exhausted ferretti had fortunately enough to answer the demand and as often declared that it was impossible for him not to reverence a man who could give away all that he was worth without recollecting his own distress End of footnote this pamphlet johnson presented to the bodleian library on a blank leaf of it is pasted a paragraph cut out of a newspaper containing an account of the death and character of williams plainly written by johnson on saturday the twelfth about twelve at night died mr zachariah williams in his eighty-third year after an illness of eight months in full possession of his mental faculties he has been long known to philosophers and seamen for his skill in magnetism and his proposal to ascertain the longitude by a peculiar system of the variation of the compass he was a man of industry indefatigable of conversation inoffensive patient of adversity and disease eminently sober temperate and pious and worthy to have ended life with better fortune boswell End footnote. A Scheme of Life for Sunday, I tired 47. In July this year he had formed some scheme of mental improvement, the particular purpose of which does not appear. But we find in his Prayers and Meditations, page 25, a prayer entitled, On the Study of Philosophy as an Instrument of Living. And after it follows a note, This study was not pursued. On the thirteenth of the same month, he wrote in his journal the following scheme of life for Sunday. Having lived, as he with tenderness of conscience expresses himself, not without an habitual reverence for the Sabbath, yet without that attention to its religious duties which Christianity requires, one, to rise early, And in order to do it, to go to sleep early on Saturday. 2. To use some extraordinary devotion in the morning. 3. To examine the tenor of my life, and particularly the last week, and to mark my advances in religion or recession from it. 4. To read the scripture methodically, with such helps as are at hand. 5 to go to church twice 6 to read books of divinity either speculative or practical 7 to instruct my family 8 to wear off by meditation any worldly soil contracted in the week 1756 i 47 in seventeen fifty six Johnson found that the great fame of his dictionary had not set him above the necessity of making provision for the day that was passing over him. Footnote, Johnson's works volume forty nine Malone, in a note on this passage, says Johnson appears to have been in this year in great pecuniary distress, having been arrested for debt. On which occasion Richardson became his surety. He refers to the following letter in the Richardson correspondence. To Mr. Richardson, Tuesday, February 19, 1756. Dear Sir, I return you my sincerest thanks for the favour which you were pleased to do me two nights ago. Be pleased to accept of this little book, which is all that I have published this winter, The inflammation has come again into my eye, so that I can write very little. I am so your most obliged and most humble servant, Samuel Johnson. The little book is not, as Mr. Croker suggests, William's longitude, for it was published in January 1755, but the abridgment of the dictionary, which was advertised in the Gentleman's magazine for January 1756. Murphy says, Life, page 86, that he has before him a letter in Johnson's handwriting which shows the distress of the man who had written the Rambler, and finished the great work of his dictionary. It is directed to Mr. Richardson, and it is as follows, Sir, I am obliged to entreat your assistance. I am now under an arrest for five pounds eighteen shillings. Mr. Strawn, from whom I should have received the necessary help in this case, is not at home, and I am afraid of not finding Mr. Miller. If you will be so good as to send me this sum, I will very gratefully repay you, and add it to all former obligations. I am, sir, your most obedient and most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, Gough Square, 16th of March. In the margin of this letter there is a memorandum in these words. March sixteenth seventeen fifty six sent six guineas witness win richardson in the European magazine there is the following anecdote recorded for which Stevens most likely was the authority i remember writing to richardson said johnson from a sponging-house and was so sure of my deliverance through his kindness and liberality that Before his reply was brought I knew I could afford to joke with the rascal who had me in custody and did so over a pint of adulterated wine For which at that instant I had no money to pay It is very likely that this anecdote has no other foundation Than Johnson's second letter to Richardson Which is dated not from a sponging house, but from his own residence What kind of fate awaited a man who was thrown into prison for debt is shown by the following passage in Wesley's journal, dated February third, 1753. I visited one in the Marshalsea prison, a nursery of all manner of wickedness. Oh, shame to man that there should be such a place, such a picture of hell upon earth. A few days later he writes, I visited as many more as I could. I found some in their cells underground, others in their garrets, half-starved both with cold and hunger, added to weakness and pain. Payment for the dictionary, Anno Domini seventeen fifty six. Johnson's opinion of booksellers, I, forty seven no royal or noble patron extended a munificent hand to give independence to the man who had conferred stability on the language of his country we may feel indignant that there should have been such unworthy neglect but we must at the same time congratulate ourselves when we consider that too this very neglect operating to rouse the natural indolence of his constitution We owe many valuable productions, which otherwise perhaps might never have appeared. He had spent, during the progress of the work, the money for which he had contracted to write his dictionary. We have seen that the reward of his labour was only fifteen hundred and seventy-five pounds, and, when the expense of amanuensies and paper and other articles are deducted, his clear profit was very inconsiderable. I once said to him, "I am sorry, sir. You did not get more for your dictionary." His answer was, "I am sorry too, but it was very well. The booksellers are generous liberal minded men Footnote. in a debate on the copyright bill on May the sixteenth seventeen seventy four Governor Johnston said. It had been urged that Dr. Johnson had received an after-gratification from the booksellers who employed him to compile his dictionary. He had in his hand a letter from Dr. Johnson, which he read, in which the doctor denied the assertion, but declared that his employers fulfilled their bargain with him and that he was satisfied. He upon all occasions did ample justice to their character in this respect, footnote he more than once attacked them thus in an appeal to the public which he wrote for the gentleman's magazine in seventeen thirty nine he said nothing is more criminal in the opinion of many of them than for an author to enjoy more advantage from his own works than they are disposed to allow him this is a principle so well established among them that we can produce some who threatened printers with their highest displeasure by having dared to print books for those that wrote them. In The Life of Savage, written in 1744, he writes of the avarice by which the booksellers are frequently incited to oppress that genius by which they are supported. In The Life of Dryden, written in 1779, he speaks of an improvement the general conduct of traders was much less liberal in those times than in our own their views were narrower and their manners grosser to the mercantile ruggedness of that race the delicacy of the poet was sometimes exposed he considered them as the patrons of literature and indeed, although they have eventually been considerable gainers by his dictionary, it is to them that we owe its having been undertaken and carried through. At the risk of great expense, for they were not absolutely sure of being indemnified. On the first day of this year, we find from his private devotions that he had then recovered from sickness. Footnote: Prayers and Meditations, page forty, Boswell. Johnson wrote to Miss Boothby on December 30th, 1755. If I turn my thoughts upon myself, what do I perceive but a poor, helpless being reduced by a blast of wind to weakness and misery? Mr. Fitzherbert sent to-day to offer me some wine. The people about me say I ought to accept it. I shall therefore be obliged to him if he will Send me a bottle. Piozzi letters end a footnote. And in February, that his eye was restored to its use. Footnote, and Meditations*, page twenty-seven. Boswell end footnote. The pious gratitude with which he acknowledges mercies upon every occasion is very edifying. As is the humble submission which he breathes when it is the will of his heavenly Father to try him with afflictions as such dispositions become the state of man here and are the true effects of religious discipline we cannot but venerate in johnson one of the most exercised minds that our holy religion hath ever formed if there be any thoughtless enough to suppose such exercise the weakness of a great understanding let them look up to johnson and be convinced that what he so earnestly practised must have a rational foundation. Christopher Smart, Anno Domini, 1756. His works this year were an abstract or epitome in octavo of his folio dictionary, and a few essays in a monthly publication entitled The Universal Visitor. Christopher Smart, with whose unhappy vacillation of mind he sincerely sympathized, was one of the stated undertakers of this miscellany, and it was to assist him that Johnson sometimes employed his pen. Kit Smart, once a fellow of Pembroke Hall, Cambridge, ended his life in the King's Bench Prison where he had, owed to a small subscription of which Dr. Burney was at the head, a miserable pittance beyond the prison allowance. In his latest letter to Dr. Burney, he passionately pleaded for a fellow-sufferer, whom I myself, he impressively adds, have already assisted according to my willing poverty. In another letter to the same friend, he said, I bless God for your good nature which pleased to take for a receipt. Memoirs of Dr. Burney. All the essays marked with two asterisks have been ascribed to him, but I am confident from internal evidence that of these neither The Life of Chaucer, Reflections on the State of Portugal, nor An Essay on Architecture were written by him. I am equally confident upon the same evidence that he wrote Further Thoughts on Agriculture Dagger. In this essay, Johnson writes, I think there is room to question whether a great part of mankind has yet been informed that life is sustained by the fruits of the earth. I was once, indeed, provoked to ask a lady of great eminence for genius whether she knew of what bread is made being sequel of a very inferior essay on the same subject and which though carried on as if by the same hand is both in thinking and expression so far above it and so strikingly peculiar as to leave no doubt of its true parent and that he also wrote a dissertation on the state of literature and authors dagger in the universal visitor this essay is entitled reflections on the present state of literature and in johnson's works a project for the employment of authors the whole world he says is turning author their number is so large that employment must be found for them there are some reasons for which they may seem particularly qualified for a military life. They are used to suffer want of every kind. They are accustomed to obey the word of command from their patrons and their booksellers. They have always passed a life of hazard and adventure uncertain what may be their state on the next day. There are some whom long depression under supercilious patrons has so humbled and crushed that They will never have steadiness to keep their ranks but for these men there may be found fights and drums and they will be well enough pleased to inflame others to battle if they are not obliged to fight themselves and a dissertation on the epitaphs written by pope dagger the last of these indeed he afterwards added to his idler He added it also to his life of Pope. End of footnote. Why the essays truly written by him are marked in the same manner with some which he did not write, I cannot explain. But with deference to those who have ascribed to him the three essays which I have rejected, they want all the characteristical marks of Johnsonian composition. End of section 35